This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to another discussion on The Mosaic, where we explore current issues and trends through in-depth analysis, commentary, and discussion. From social justice to music and art, we're covering it all to highlight the unique experiences and opinions of our diverse community. Today, we'll take you to a protest bringing attention to the rise of Hindu supremacy. We'll hear from a local organizer about the current state of Hindutva in India and Canada. Then, we'll look ahead to Adalway's Indigenous Summer Market going on this Saturday. I'm Lauren Rolston, and this is The Mosaic for August 24th on CHUO 89.1 FM. A crowd gathered at the Human Rights Monument downtown on Sunday. The people there held bright posters and banners. One said, India for all, Hindutva must fall. The biggest one said solidarity against Hindutva fascism in India and Canada. The group met at the monument to call attention to the rise of Hindu nationalist ideologies, which are associated with right-wing extremism with its purest racial elements, in particular with Islamophobic sentiments and violence. The protesters are urging the Canadian government to take action by publicly condemning the systemic discrimination against minorities in India. They chanted against the Indian Prime Minister and the state violence occurring beneath him. They called attention to the activists in India facing arbitrary arrests and heard from speakers about the conditions of Hindutva and their vision of a non-secular Hindu state. genuine democracy and lasting peace in the country. A regime that is directly and by the admission of its own political actors complicit in the murder, lynching, rapes, segregation of people along the religious, communal, caste and class lines. A regime that is rooted in the RSS-led Hindutva project. That was Shivangi Mishra. We spoke about the authoritarian regime in India and how Hindutva is manifesting in Canada as well. Here's that conversation. And then with the anti-imperialist group, you spoke at this demonstration on Sunday and you were standing on this platform and giving a speech. And um, for people who weren't able to make it, what did Sunday look like for you? So Sunday, a bunch of us gathered, not only people in Ottawa, but also solidarity groups, South Asian-led groups from Toronto, Montreal, and other cities who were able to make it. So we gathered at the Human Rights Monument, and we marched to Parliament Hill, and then we stopped at the Prime Minister's office, and then we walked back 
And the reason for this gathering was to denounce the rise of Hindutva fascism in India and also the rise of these groups in Canada. And I thought it was an excellent event because it is much needed and we were these are urgent calls for action. So we had speakers from different community groups. So we had a speaker from the South Asian Dalit and Adivasi Network. Um, we had people from the National Council of Canadian Muslims and uh, different community groups who had gathered together and workers and organizers. So it was really an exciting event because it's I think it's one of those few occasions that a lot of different solidarity groups have come together to denounce the rise of fascism in India. Yeah, and we had a little political skit. And one of the purposes for this gathering was to not only educating the masses in Ottawa and elsewhere, but also to ask the Prime Minister of Canada and also the government of Canada to take strong action against the rise of this far-right extremism in India. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about the actions to address that. But before that, I would like to ask, you know, if you could just tell me about Hindutva. Sure, yeah. So... Hindutva could, like, I think roughly be translated as Hindu supremacy. And it is an ideology that is uh, propagated and accepted and by the RSS, which is a paramilitary right-wing force, which is also the ideological leadership of the current government of India. So RSS stands for Rashtra Swayamsevak Sangh. And it's been in existence for many, many years. The BJP, the current political party, did not just come into existence out of nowhere. It has always, it's, it's been around for a while. And they believe that India and the Indian subcontinent should be a Hindu majority state. So a Hindu state. And that is led by the Hindutva ideology. So what does that look like? If you want to have a Hindu majority state, it comes at the cost of suppressing other religions and minorities in the region. So that includes Muslims, Dalits, Adivasis, Christians, Sikhs, and other religious minorities. That in a historical context, have always existed and coexisted in India. And of course, there's always been inter-religious tensions and communal violence and cruelty towards each other, especially under the British rule, uh, because it was a very systematic policy of the British to divide and rule at the time. However, what this current government has unleashed is unprecedented. It has structured this under this Hindutva ideology that they propagate through extreme violence. They're very organized. They have Carter-based mass organizations, not only in India, but now also uh, propping up other in other places in the world. Mm -hmm. And you touched on it briefly, but who are the primary targets of this Hindu supremacy? So, yeah, like I mentioned, I think if you want Hindu supremacy, it comes at the cost of suppressing other religious minorities. Hindutva ideology also, at its very core, oppresses women and is extremely misogynistic and patriarchal. So in, in a way, it concentrates power in the hands of the few, and that looks like upper caste men in power, whereas everybody else in the country is sort of second class citizens. So naturally, in, according to them, shifts to a second class status. And what, what does that look like? So, for example, bringing in laws that discriminates against Muslims. They tried to bring in a law which specific, which was very fundamentally discriminatory. They wanted to convert the citizenship on the basis of religion, where Muslims and non-Muslims were very categorically separated. So you basically, anybody who's not a Hindu would have had to prove that why they should be citizens of India. And any immigration from other countries would be under question. So basically questioning the, even the existence of Muslims in India. And to put it into context, we have about over 200 million Muslims in India. It's 10% of the world's Muslim 
population. It's a huge population that we're talking about. In other ways, we also live an ecosystem of fake news where anti-Muslim rhetoric is exchanged, is sent on WhatsApp groups. A huge population, a large population of India is dominated by this news cycle that is inciting violence against these different groups. So that is has become a norm. Other ways that could look like is... Um, they have created uh, what they're calling the cow protective groups. They're basically mob vigilantes, which are defended and supported by the government. This was one of the first things that they did when they came to power was create these cow vigilante and mob vigilante groups that started anyone who was accused or suspected of transferring cows for slaughter was lynched, was publicly flogged or lynched or killed on the spot. And these activities of extreme violence were supported by the government at the time which is also the current government. So they started normalizing acts of extreme violence against Muslims. Under Sikhs, another religious minority group who were active in protesting against anti-farmers laws, which basically wanted to, to simplify it, privatize a lot of the selling of farm produce. So because it was happening in the state of Punjab and other places, a lot of farmers who were Sikhs were protesting against this for many, many months. It was a huge farmers protest. So the government also cr started criminalizing and started propaganda against Sikhs as well, calling them Khalistanis. Any activism that happens in or any protest and opposition that happens in Canada is branded as Khalistani, which is a group that is asking for segregation. So they're all like put together in one big umbrella of, you know, people who are opposed to a Hindu state. I, I also meant to ask about these cow vigilante groups. How, what do we know about how they enforce this violence? Mm -hmm. So the two ways or actually multiple ways, not just two ways of implementing this kind of systemic violence. One is obviously above ground, the legal ways of doing this. So that can look like, first of all, banning beef. So one of the first thing they did was they prohibited consumption, selling of beef in the country. What that means, it kind of legitimizes a lot what follows, right? And so anybody who was accused or, they, first of all, they can start convicting people under that law, anyone they'd want to accuse or suppress. So criminalization, weaponizing law and legal tools is one of the key, one of the main tools of oppression that this government has used from its day one. So one of those things was this beef ban. That kind of legitimizes a lot of the violence that is used. The other ways of doing this are not strictly legal ways. So for example, creating a lot of like hurting religious sentiments, which is also in a supposedly secular state such as ours, and it's freedom of religion and expression is a constitutionally protected right in India. So under that framework, hurting religious sentiments could also criminalize you, which it does. It does criminalize you. So they started using that as well. So for example, someone accused of stopping a Hindu religious right would then be put into jail or be criminalized. Um, so a lot of like mob activity, the targets of these became the minorities. Who, who are always portrayed as being contradictory to the Hindu sentiment. And often so it's very fake. So for example, you will see this a fake news image, which would say 95% of rapists convicted in India are Muslims. That's simply not true. It is not based on anything, but it is being circulated. It is inciting violence. It is inciting as much hate as possible between the groups and trying to divide on religious grounds. One other example that I can think of is very also a very systemic way of oppression is something called love jihad, which is the accusations or this whole rhetoric is that Muslim men are luring Hindu women to convert them into Islam. 
So it's a very classic way of propagating Islamophobia, which is what they're doing is they are not only controlling women's bodies and women's lives and denying them agency as if women cannot decide for themselves who they marry or choose to live with, but also, on the other hand, criminalizing Muslims and Muslim men especially. So that is also another systematic way. National investigative agencies, government institutions are deployed to investigate the phenomenon of love jihad, which is a myth. And yet it is propagated by this current government. It's the government lawyers that are defending this concept in, in Supreme Court. It is now slowly becoming a part of our legal fabric. There was a law that was passed that any religious conversion by fraud or coercion could be criminalized. Now, as you can imagine, majority of these cases are against Muslim men. So that's kind of have unrolled the, the system of legal, but also extra legal tools used to target minorities. Hmm. And you can see like in these legislations, in these inflammatory rhetorics, it's increasingly moving away from a secular state. Many speakers at the event on Sunday, they mentioned the word genocide. It was used a lot in chants as well. So I'm wondering, do you think that's the case? Is this a genocide? Um, so... I want, I want to answer that carefully, but I also, I want to preface that with one thing, which is before we acknowledge or recognize that or identify that as genocide, what's key to note here is the political actors and people who support or and this government itself, so basically members of this particular, the current ruling government of India, they are calling for genocide. There are speeches of members of parliament, there are speeches of political politicians in India who are calling for mass killings of Muslims in, in India or the rape of Muslim women in India. And all of this is happening with impunity in public sight, right? So there are these congregations that are happening where people are taking oaths to kill Muslims if they hurt Hindus, which is happening in the context of any way creating a fear psychosis that Muslims are hurting Hindus in the first place, which may, may not be true, which is not true. So before we identify it, we have to acknowledge the calls for genocide coming from this particular political body. And in addition to that, I would just like to clarify that for genocide, you don't need to spill a single drop of blood. The genocide can be cultural. Genocide can be ethnic. Uh, for it's very similar to in the case of Canada, for example, the years and years of extreme systemic violence against missing and murdered indigenous women has been declared a genocide. And rightly so. In, and why it is an ongoing genocide, because it is a systemic discrimination that happens over a period of time. Very similarly, even by those standards, it is definitely, in my opinion, can be identified as genocide under the international law. And the founder of the Genocide Watch, and Genocide Watch has predicted many genocides of the world, for example, the genocide of Rwanda, have now very clearly stated that India has the signs and the processes in place for a genocide. There have been international publications that have identified this as ethnic cleansing of Muslims in India. You can read the reports under, for example, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, many and even UN special rapporteurs under the United Nations treaty mechanisms or otherwise, and under also the treaty reviewing bodies where India is a signatory to, have very clearly stated that India at this moment is deploying its public institutions and its state-led atrocities against and targeting Muslims, Dalits, and, and women and girls in India. So that is an undisputed fact. Will it, is it identify as genocide? I think we have enough evidence to call it so. Mm -hmm. and, and what do we know about the state of the BJP? Does it look like this is something that's going to be amplified? Yes, I think because 
they have the control of a lot of the public institutions. And in front of our eyes, we are watching them erode, like the public institutions are eroding in front of our eyes as we are speaking. Uh, That includes the independence of the judiciary, that includes influencing election bodies, that includes amending the constitutions and influencing laws that have given us rights. So one of the examples is um, one of the first things they did was they started using the law to suppress political activists or human rights lawyers and activists and civil society organizations so that there is no opposition to this systemic abuse of law. And in that context, abuse of law, making sure that they continue to stay in power, using an ecosystem of fake news, winning the sympathy of the majority population that is Hindus by folding them into this very ultra-nationalist project, this nationalist pride of India. Um, There is also a big project of the Hindutva ideology is that, you know, this nationalistic it's always underpinned with that the Hindus are under attack or India is under attack. And so we must, you know, rise up in patriotism and support this ideology. So a lot of that is happening. Looking at the situation in India, I don't want to say that we cannot defeat fascism or we cannot defeat a political power like this. We definitely can. We've done it before with the British and we can do this again. But at the same time, They are here now and they have the control of the country in many key ways, which is they are the state. So it's a a challenging role for us. But I think the opposition is building across the world, not just in India, that I think they can be removed from power. It's happened before. They've been in power before and we have electorally removed them. So I think it is definitely possible. Mm -hmm. And opposition is growing across the world. But I also wanted to ask you about the rise of Hindutva in Canada as well. Can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. And it's a very important point, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to build this movement within Canada and other countries as well. And especially in the context that Indians are one of the biggest immigrant population in this country. They're also growing. We had over 400,000 you know, permanent residents added to the country last year, and it will continue to grow. We contribute to the Canadian economy. We contribute to the Canadian working class. Uh, we are a huge part of the Canadian fabric. Which also comes with its challenges because a lot of times the diaspora population, which have stayed here for many, many years, can also participate in the fascist ideology and the right-wing ideology of the Indian state. So one part of this is the ruling party has these mass organizations which are all over the world. Now, what does that mean? It means organizations which could be registered as an NGO in Canada. It can be a charity organization. It can get its tax benefits. But what it can do, it can transfer funds and structurally support and have events and propaganda events in support of the current government. Also, there are bills like the Hindu phobia bill saying things like any attack on Indians or any attack on the South Asian identity is against Hinduism. So Hindu phobia, they often try to put that under that it's it's racism or it's Hindu phobia. So anything against India can, can be termed as Hindu phobia, which is a myth. If we are critical of the current government, if we are critical of the government policies, it is not an act against Hinduism. It is an act against a right-wing Hindu extremism. So that distinction sometimes can be can be unclear. One of the ways that we saw this rise up and we saw this in practice was 
there was a motion introduced in the largest school board in Canada, the Toronto District School Board, asking to identify caste as a protected category or have a developing guidelines to add caste in their anti-discrimination school policies. So this motion was presented and there was a vote on it. A lot of community solidarity groups sent in letters in support of this motion because it is extremely important to protect our children from anti-caste bigotry or anti-caste discrimination within the schools. There was a letter which was submitted by groups, by so-called civil society organizations opposing this, calling this Hindu phobia, calling this against Canadian principles and all sorts of things. It was signed by like hundreds of people. So that tells us that these groups are very organized and they are present. For context, like anti-caste discrimination is prohibited in Indian constitution. It is illegal. It is outlawed in India, you know, since our independence. But to bring that similar motion or bring that similar caste discrimination is illegal in Canada, was opposed by so many Indians living here and so many organizations living here, which is what is very alarming. It's a very dangerous move. It is a very dangerous environment that we're living in. That's something as simple as that and as necessary as that can be opposed. And so at this moment, that motion was passed. We were successful. It was led by the South Asian Dalit and Adivasi Network, which were also present at the protest yesterday and on a lot of other progressive voices in Toronto. There is a future in Canada, and I think one of their main demands is to add caste as a protected category under the Human Rights Code. And that movement is also building, because a lot of times when immigrants move to the country, they bring a lot of that hierarchy and on the basis of caste and class and religions along with them. And to dismantle them in Canada is also extremely important. Hmm. And what can we do? And why does it matter that something is done? There are many ways to answer that. I think one thing I would say, why does it matter? I'll I'll take that first, is it matters because we're talking about millions of people that will be affected and that are being affected by the violence, the brutality and the cruelty of the government of India right now. We are talking about over 200 million Muslim population in the country. We are talking about over 600 million women in the country which are under attack with entrenched misogyny in their ideological approaches and systems. We are talking about over 200 Dalits living in the country, which are kept outside of the caste system and have had to face systemic discrimination for many, many years, and they continue to do so. So we're talking about millions of people whose everyday lives are affected by these policies and their everyday by the Hindutva, the fascism that's unleashed in the country. So it's called the largest democracy in the world. It is the most populated country in the world. If it affects India, it affects the region, it affects the world, it affects the people who are who are migrants, are escaping from these conditions. And we are talking about not just how massive the problem is, If we cannot do anything as an international movement against genocide or against ethnic cleansing of minorities in one part of the world, then there is nothing that is protecting us. If we are not protecting the people of India, we're not protecting the political prisoners, the people who are lawyers, people who are defending activists, human rights activists, the women and girls in India, the the people living with disability in India, there is nothing that is protecting us when that kind of forces, which are developing in Canada and other parts of the world, there is fascism not just in India, there is oppression of the Palestinian people, people in Haiti, people in different African countries currently. Without any solidarity, uh, I'm just going to repeat myself, but if they they came for them first, then it's it's us next. I think we do need to protect each other and keep each other safe. Mm Mm-hmm. And like you said, it signals genocide. It's not something that you can just stand by and watch happen. Um, Absolutely. 
Those were all the questions I had for you today. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add? I think like at the end of the day, I would say that I think focusing on very clear and concrete demands. So for example, A, asking the Canadian government to denounce and acknowledge the ethnic cleansing of Muslims in India, to denounce the rise of Hindutva fascist groups in Canada, and to acknowledge that any Islamophobia should be denounced and resisted against. But also, I think we want the Canadian government and the people of Canada to acknowledge that any critical or any criticism of the Indian government is not Hinduphobia. It is not against any religion. It is against the acts of violence, which is propagated by some fascist and far-right elements of the country. One important thing is to protect the people who are coming to Canada from India, escaping these conditions. So for example, uh, migrant status for all. Giving permanent residency status to people who are coming to all migrants is extremely important to protect them, to not keep them in precarious jobs and conditions. I think that's that's something we can do and also support international and support movement and people's movements in Canada that are building as very similar to the protests that we organize. And I'm really hoping that in the future we can have more events like this, where we can we can have more educationals, where people in Canada, progressive voices in Canada can learn and learn how to support and stand in solidarity with the people of India. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you, Lauren, for Perfect questions. I'm very excited to, you know, work more on this issue, especially locally in Ottawa, because it seems to be there's not a lot of international solidarity organizations or work that is ongoing denouncing what's happening in the rest of the world. And these are not isolated systems. It's not just that these organizations exist in Canada and they also exist in other parts of the world. So that it is a very much a very connected world. So the, the, the oppressor is not in one country. And I think we need to acknowledge that and work together for that. That was my conversation with Shivangi Mishra about the rise of Hindutva in Canada and India. Adawa is a co-working community hub for Indigenous entrepreneurs, creators, and business owners in Ottawa. The word itself comes from the Algonquin Anishinaabe word, meaning to trade or place of trade. On Saturday, they're holding an Indigenous summer market at their headquarters. I spoke with Adawa team lead, Zachary Pash, about the upcoming market. So just to kick us right off, for the listeners who don't know, what is Adawa? So Adawa is an Indigenous co-working hub space for Indigenous entrepreneurs. And so we provide resources as the community hub space, like dedicated desks, hot desks where they can work out of. And we have a tech library of a million resources, such as like laptops, iPads that they can all use. And the membership is all free to Indigenous entrepreneurs. And then, and then can you tell me about the Indigenous summer market that's coming up? Yeah, so the, the summer market that's coming up will take place on 238 Somerset West on Saturday, August 26th from 11 to 4 p.m. And the main idea is like a vibrant celebration of Indigenous culture and entrepreneurship connecting with the Pride festivities. Mm-hmm. And so so what kind of vendors are going to be there? What can people expect if they want to take a, take a look at the market? You can expect like a million like handmade item crafts from indigenous makers, uh, creators and entrepreneurs. And also like join us for the bannock and tea, like catering and all of that with the members that we have there. And what comes with that as well, too, is performers and like the quality of our indigenous performers. For example, we have Randy Blue uh, Gekmik, who does uh, the drumming, right? He's the spirit wolf singers, um, but he's going to be coming by himself to to offer his drum and sing for us there. And then we have Mariah Migwans, Mariah Smith. Shabbat, who does hoop dancing, so she'll be performing on that day as well for us. Wow, hoop dancing, drum performance. 
Yes, yes, it's all exciting things happening, and to to represent the community here and all that, like it, it means so much to me. You know, connecting with like Two Spirit and that Pride festivities is really big connection with the Somerset Street. So I'm happy to really be a part of it. It's a very big privilege for for me. And the amazing thing too is that we'll have uh, Robbie Le Riviere from Fall Down G. He'll be doing like a, a live mural during the event, and so like. We encourage the attendees to participate in it because they can add their touch to this like collaborative masterpiece that he's going to create for us. And it'll be like a, a dream catcher and a symbol of unity and like reflecting on like themes of pride and indigenous culture. And and so what do you hope that this kind of brings to the community? I think the main thing that I want to bring to this community is the appreciation of the indigenous culture and traditions mixed in with the two-spiriting and that community as well too that just to have fun together right it's really like a bridge together it comes in a form of reconciliation i find and to have that on that day i think it's just gonna make fireworks basically so and have you heard from like the vendors or performers thus far about this market like what their kind of thoughts are I think their thoughts on it is that they're really excited to have a place to kind of showcase their their crafts. And I think this is a really like with the pride community, I think they're in love with the indigenous like crafts and all of it. And I think that excitement of having the opportunity to freestyle with it, it's it's gonna be really exciting for the members. And I think they're really pumped for it. Mm-hmm. Fireworks, like you said. Yeah, like fireworks, absolutely. And what else is Adawe working on? We've been working on a few things as of lately. Like, um, I, I can't announce anything like <laughs> too much so far. Like, we're waiting on certain days to announce some things. But a lot of exciting things with our programming with uh, the indigenous entrepreneurs who are members, basically, and a way of supporting them and taking their business to the next level. And that's all that I will say about it. A little sneak peek. Yeah, just a little sneak peek. Well, those were all the questions I had for you today. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add, maybe? Ah, uh, yeah. This event's gonna be like diverse and like handcrafted artwork, jewelry, traditional foods, modern creations. And like the market kind of showcases the rich diversity of indigenous entrepreneurship. And it's a family friendly event where all people of backgrounds can come together and join support indigenous vendors and performers. Wonderful and super accessible too, just on Somerset, like you said. Yeah, yeah, with like the street closures, all of that. It's uh, it's another way of kind of showcasing us and in, in the community here, so. Love to hear about it. I'll, I'll see you then. Yeah, 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 I'll see you then. I'll see everybody else there too. That was my conversation with Adalway team lead Zachary Pash about their indigenous summer market. And that's it for our discussion on the Mosaic. Thanks for tuning in. You can find this episode and previous ones on chuo.fm. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we'll see you next week on CHUO 89.1 FM, your community radio station.